This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we're in the midst of another state-sponsored terrorist attack by the apartheid state of Israel, which has launched a three-day murderous assault on the Gaza Strip. And um, mercifully, there's a ceasefire right now, but we're going to be talking about uh, over 44 dead and hundreds of Palestinian men, women, and children who've been injured and killed in this murderous assault and uh, devastating as usual. And we're, we're going to talk about the painful reality on the ground, obviously, and the, and the lies by the apartheid state in terms of their state-sponsored terror against these uh, civilian populations in Gaza. We're also going to be talking about the media coverage, which continues to be abysmal. But before we get to that, we're going to be watching an interview that you did with Dr. Robert Ross. He's a professor of literary arts and social justice studies at Part Point University in Pittsburgh. And uh, he had a lawsuit brought against him again by the Law for Project for teaching about Palestine and his support from BDS. That lawsuit was dropped. But he endured so much distress, obviously, in attacks by uh, pro-apartheid uh, forces supporting the apartheid state. So big show today. We got a lot to talk about. That's right. Just that's another major blow to the lawfare project. You know, although they have uh, unlimited uh, amounts of funds and right. pro bono lawyers working for them, this is a major loss for them because the judge basically just tossed it out of court. Didn't want it even to proceed, just right. And and this does this sound familiar, right? Yeah, it's familiar. It's like what happened with uh, Professor Rabab Abdul Hadi, and uh, this is a growing kind of momentum from judges taking taking a stand uh, for our First Amendment rights to be able to speak critically of the apartheid state or of of any political entity. So it's a big win. Okay, so let's uh, watch uh, Professor Robert Ross. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's highly controversial definition of anti-Jewish racism equates a criticism of Zionism with anti-Semitism. The U.S. State Department adopted a similar definition stating that it is anti-Semitic to say Israel's foundation was a racist endeavor or to apply double standards to Israel by requiring from it behavior, and I'm quoting here, not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. This has been weaponized by the likes of the Lawfare Project, the Israel lobby group that uses lawsuits to harass supporters of Palestinian rights. Lawfare has been suing teachers and professors who undertake legitimate classroom debate about Israel's system of apartheid and other human rights abuses of the Palestinians. However, it has an abysmal record of success. The most recent case point uh, being the judge's dismissal of such a suit against Park Point University Professor Robert Ross and his colleague. In 2018, a federal judge dismissed a lawsuit by lawfare against Professor Rabab Abdelhadi and San Francisco State University. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Dr. Robert Ross. He is a professor of literary arts and social justice studies at Point Park University in Pittsburgh. Welcome to Arab Talk, uh, Professor. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. It's a pleasure. First, let me congratulate you for defending academic freedom and prevailing uh, over the Lawfare Project. Sure, it's the least I can do. And uh, yeah, we're very happy about the victory. So briefly walk us through this case and, and, and what prompted it. I know, I mean, I don't want to give all the details. Another professor, Hannah Newman, uh, China Newman at Park Point was the plaintiff uh, in this lawsuit. Can you tell us what the claims were? Sure. It's a little bit convoluted, but I'll try to simplify it as much as I can. There was a professor who was accused by a student of saying inappropriate things in the classroom of a sexual nature. Um, she basically humiliated this student who um, came out as a rape victim and had you know, nothing to do with, with Palestine or Israel. And uh, the student filed a claim against the professor. The student came to me with this complaint. And as required by law, I uh, reported the complaint to human resources and to my provost. And they did a big investigation 
and they concluded that the, the this professor did not uh, violate any federal laws in saying what she did in the classroom. Uh, but nevertheless, she was put on paid leave during the investigation. Now, about a year after that, or maybe a little bit less, she filed a lawsuit against the university alleging that I conspired with the student to launch this whole investigation. Um, and her, her rationale was that I conspired to do it because she's Jewish and because I'm anti-Semitic. And her, her proof that I was anti-Semitic is that I've been involved in the BDS movement and Palestine solidarity work. And so really the case rested on just a, a number of untruths um, most notably for me is that that I was anti-Semitic and that I was lying about this thing and that, uh, you know, doing BDS work is somehow therefore automatically um, makes you makes you anti-Semitic, which, of course, we all know is is completely false. So uh, what did they actually want to gain from the suit? Uh, punitive damages, lit- 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 uh, legitimization of Zionism uh, by the administration? Is that what they wanted? It seems that way. I mean, definitely punitive damages. I think she was suing for several tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and and really, I mean, you know, from my perspective, it it definitely seemed to be, even though the, the, the lawsuit was was legally filed against the university, essentially was, she was saying the university allowed me to um, participate in, in, you know, BDS and teach Palestine and teach about settler colonialism in the classroom. And so much of the lawsuit was devoted to really just um, identifying me in particular as this anti-Semitic bully or whatever. And so I think a lot of it was was about, I mean, I, I don't want to make it all about me, but it, um, a lot of it was about her just specifically identifying me as some sort of um, anti-Semite. And so I think like, you know, that of course is part of this larger Zionist project of, um, of, defaming, attacking, threatening, um, in, in any way discouraging uh, people who are are trying to be in solidarity with Palestine or, or Palestinians themselves, of course. So um, I think the larger, well, the Lawfare Project got in on it, I think, really to, to further their aims of, of making it um, difficult um, or at least intimidating or even impossible for students, for faculty members to just... <laughs> you know, open doors to the truth um, about what's going on there, much less advocating um, for Palestinian rights and, and being in solidarity with Palestinian struggles for, for freedom and liberation. I understand that the judge took the time to explain why the plaintiff's suit was deeply flawed. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I can't give you a legal analysis, but I was really encouraged that that the judge, he dismissed like just about every part of the the lawsuit that had anything to do with Palestine, with BDS, with me, um, with my colleagues. And he said essentially that there is, there's absolutely nothing legally wrong with teaching about Palestine, teaching BDS, participating in BDS, advocating for Palestinian rights. He said, you know, and, and he cited uh, case law to support this. And this is a federal judge, um, you know, who's, who's no, you know, he's no friend of, of Palestinians. Um, he's not, um, he's not partisan in, in that, in that sense. And he's not, um, you know, I don't think we should hail him as a hero, but, but he was just, you know, pointing to the law that the, the law of the land makes it clear that you can't punish someone for merely um, participating in boycott, divestment, sanction movements, or, um, or even, you know, taking a strong stance um, for Palestinian rights, liberation, return, and justice. So I, I was really encouraged. I mean, he he had this long section in this 80-page dismissal specifically about BDS, including a footnote, a long footnote um, that that really said if, you know, if he were not to dismiss this. And remember, this didn't even go to trial. This is, mm-hmm. he's saying this doesn't even have legitimacy to go to trial. And he said, if he did not dismiss this, it would unfairly tip the scales and make it possible for um, for people to do this sort of thing again to to basically illegalize um, simple um, support for for Palestinian rights and and the tactics that we use in solidarity to try to achieve them. Do you think that? Do you think uh, 
your vindication and the judge's explanation set an important legal precedent in support of open discussion of Palestine and Israel in other uh, academic uh, forums? I sure hope so. I sure hope so. Uh, you know, I, as someone who's not a lawyer, I don't know legally how that that works. I've been told that it, it should set a legal precedent um, for opening the door for or closing the door, really, for these sorts of lawsuits to have any traction at all. And hopefully, um, you know, thank you for 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 talking about this on your show. Hopefully more people learn about it and, and won't be so intimidated, because I think that's the thing. Even if it is legal, um, people are intimidated um, by just talking about Palestine in the classroom or showing up to a demonstration. And um, and that's really a shame. And I hope that I hope that this lawsuit, this dismissal rather of the lawsuit um opens the door for for people to feel more comfortable students faculty and um and and other folks to to really feel free to to stand up and 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 speak out um without any fear of 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 retribution sadly we've seen the same situation uh, at san francisco state university uh, then president uh, of point park uh, paul hennigan uh, aligned with lawfare and mischaracterized and denounced BDS in an open ad. We've seen this something similar to this uh, with former president uh, of San Francisco State, Leslie Wong, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Did you have uh, supporters rally, or or did your supporters rally uh, in your defense? Um, Yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends how you define rally, but I definitely had a lot of support. I have a union, a faculty union, mm-hmm. um, which I'm so grateful for. And and when that, when former president Paul Hannigan wrote that, uh, it was an op-ed in the local Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle. It was so bizarre because this, this other faculty member was suing the university, you know, on these grounds that they allowed me to participate on this. And he is basically a defendant he, his university that he's president of, he was a defendant of this lawsuit and he's writing this op-ed that basically supported her claims, you know, and it, he'd go that to that length to, and he was very clear about it. Um, I, I talked to him afterwards about it. And uh, I think he might've even said this in the, in the article, but he definitely said it to me that, um, that members of the Jewish Federation of Pittsburgh met with him um, and asked him to basically say this. And, and he wrote this, this article. Wow. When he did write it, um, yeah, I got a lot of support from students, um, from colleagues. Um, you know, I, I had a, a former colleague who wrote a letter to the president. Um, and, you know, I just, it was, I was really grateful for that. And of course, Palestine Legal was super helpful with me. Um, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, um, Friends of Sabil North America, when when Tarek Abwata was executive director, um, they all um, spoke up and, and reached out to to the president to to really condemn his his letter. Um, and we also have a local group here in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Pittsburgh Palestine Solidarity Committee. Um, they they also contacted the the president. Um, Rabbi Brent Rosen contacted the Brent Ro- the the president. So yeah, the the support was really encouraging. And and as I remember, I spoke with Tarek about this. When it was happening, he said, you know, this is this is an attack not on you, and not just on you, it's an attack on the movement. And and we we need to defend the movement. And and I, I you know, I all along I don't want this to be about me. I'm 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 fine, you know, I'm still employed, but it's it's really about the movement and defending it. And so I think the way we defend the movement is yes, in the courts and through great organizations like Palestine Legal, but also as a movement supporting one another. Well, that was actually my next question uh, related to this. Uh, there's been a trend, of course, as, as we've talked about a flow suit similar to yours at other academic institutions. Do you think IHRA definition of anti-Jewish racism is being increasingly weaponized uh, to muzzle discussions regarding Palestine? Was that the crux of this lawsuit? It sure seems like it. Um you know, or if even if it's not cited directly, it's that that sentiment of you know this sort of equation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, and it's. I think it's a losing game, though. I mean, mm-hmm. I think they they are they're using that you know organizations like the Lawfare Project, but judges don't buy it. I think increasingly people don't buy it. You know, ordinary folks who are not involved in this movement are you know they sort of like I had colleagues who. 
really just didn't know much about Palestine or just weren't involved, but they sort of, they read about the lawsuit and they said, that, that seems really silly. Like that, that doesn't make any sense that advocating for, for Palestinian rights, liberation and freedom and return is anti-Semitic. Like that doesn't add up. And so I think it's unfortunate that they're using that tactic, but I'm, I'm hopeful and confident that it's a losing tactic. Interestingly, one of the principal crafters of it, uh, Kenneth Stern, himself disagrees with how this definition is being abused and warned the Biden administration not to adopt it. To your knowledge, is there an initiative to revoke it as anti-antithetical to free speech? I mean, I I think there, I know at the at the state level or many states are have these similar laws based on that definition and and there are efforts to revoke that and you know even organizations like the ACLU um, are working on that um, Palestine legal certainly is is involved in a lot of those court cases and they're working on um, preventing that from happening so I, I am encouraged that you know there are different uh, movement local and state national uh, movements to to really revoke that that sort of claim. Professor Ross, tell us about the context of discussion of Palestine and Israel in your classes. What's its focus and what's so threatening about it? Hmm. Uh, Good questions. Um, I've taught a a few classes that involve Israel-Palestine. I've taught a course a number of times called Political Geography of the Middle East. I'm a geographer by training. Mm -hmm. And we look at... um, you know, we look across the whole region uh, and the sort of relations between different um, different nation states uh, and and groups within the region. We do focus a lot on Israel Palestine. We start really um, in the 19th century and move to the present. Um, it's not, you know, I really like my. I don't feel like my job in the classroom is to win students over or to convince them of one thing or another. I'm I'm presenting perspectives i'm opening doors i'm opening windows and giving them information that they they probably many of them have never thought of before and so you know we look at what is settler, settler colonialism how how does that work um how is israel palestine related to these larger imperial projects in the region what is zionism what does that mean for jews what does that mean for palestinians um you know we look at the the role of um you know, the, the oil economy in, in the larger Middle East. And, and so it's, you know, it's a, it's a class that we look at how borders were formed and how they're changing and who gets to be in which borders and who doesn't. And it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's um, I try to present it with as many voices as possible and as plain spokenly as possible. We have guest speakers come in um, at times and um, students, students get really fired up. I mean, like anyone, if they if they learn the truth of of Palestine, Israel, they get fired up. And, and many are like, "Why didn't I know this until now? I'm 20 years old, and I, I've never never known this." Um, I taught another course that was specifically about Israel Palestine called um, Israel Palestine colon the Colonial Present question mark. I, I put the question mark there to to keep it an open question. Um, that. I, I remember it was on Columbus Day of all days. I got into a, a big argument with a couple of colleagues, including the colleague who filed this lawsuit, um, about whether that course should run um, <laughs> at all. And and I said, you know, this is Columbus Day. We're living in a settler colonial state, and you're telling me I can't teach a class on settler colonialism. Um, but the class ran. I, I thought it went really well. Um, I thought students were able to connect. Um, settler colonialism in Palestine um, with settler colonialism here in the United States, as well in places like um, South Africa. Um, and then I, I teach a, an intro to social justice studies where we look at a number of different movements, um, mostly here in the United States, but we also look at international solidarity movements. We look historically at the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, um, as well as um, the BDS movement uh, internationally um, around, around Palestine. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's not the only thing I teach. Um, I, I mean, I, I wrote a book about 19th century baseball, which has nothing to do with Israel Palestine. I, I, I have interest, um, uh, scholarly interest beyond this. Um, and I also like, it's important for me, um, that I don't have that sort of tunnel vision and like only look at, 
at Palestine. We have to see the connections um, between different injustices and different movements. And so I, I try to reflect that in my teaching and, and in my research and writing. In the complaint, the plaintiff, uh, I mean, you uh, used as evidence that you supported BDS. I mean, wasn't this basically the crux of uh, what brought down apartheid South uh, Africa? What? Why is it so different when it comes to Palestine and yeah, colonizing? Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, that's I think because it worked. You know, I think it's it's such a it's a, such a load of BS when folks say, you know, don't don't resist violently to, to Palestinians, don't use violence. And then when, when BDS is, is used, then it's like, no, 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 don't, don't use BDS either, even though it's a, a nonviolent set of tactics. Um, and it, I think it's a, the fear is that it, it worked with South Africa. Um, it took a number of years and it took um, big institutions to, to be pushed by grassroots movements to, to participate in it. But, um, you know, BDS along with, let's be fair, um, struggles, both violent and nonviolent, on the ground in South Africa and on the borders of South Africa, it it brought down apartheid. And I think that um, people who support the Zionist state, they know that. And they know that if BDS can grow as a movement, um, it could it could threaten to um, to fundamentally change what we know of now as, as Israel or Israel-Palestine and, and really end the the racist settler colonial regime that is currently in power there. You've been t- teaching courses about the, this subject for many years. Have you noticed, like, uh, recently there is a change in the attitude, or, or I shouldn't say the attitude, maybe the knowledge about the topic when you get freshman students and new students versus, let's say, 10 years ago? Yeah. Yeah, good question. I, I think so. I think there is the needle is moving, um, that, that students both know a little bit more and they don't need, um, they're not as influenced by the, the anti-Palestinian propaganda. I think they see through that. Um, and I think that's thanks both to, unfortunately, things getting worse on the ground in Palestine, mm-hmm. but also thanks to really great organizing from Palestine to the United States, um, to everywhere. So, yeah, I think students are, um, they're more open. And, and frankly, like the students at Point Park, I'm sure students everywhere are, are, are like this, but um, they're fantastic. They're so open-minded. They come into the classroom um, ready to learn. They, they're not from privileged backgrounds normally, and um, they, but they come very earnestly wanting to learn. And it's just been such a pleasure to work with students with that sort of attitude with, you know, they don't come in with a chip on their shoulder or with this necessarily a, a an agenda they they come to to learn and i think you know when when people approach any subject whether it's palestine um or russia and ukraine or immigration policies in the us or racism in the us if you have that attitude of of humbly opening your mind and your heart to learning um you know, good things are going to happen and and i i've seen that it's a really beautiful thing what about your colleagues uh i mean aside from from their fear uh, of basically getting attacked by Zionist organizations, do they uh, realize that uh, muzzling debate on, on Palestine is an attack on academic freedom in general and, and basically the First Amendment? I mean, do, do they come, even if they don't have a stake in this, if, if, even if they don't have even the knowledge uh, about the current situation, I mean, what's their attitude about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think they are. They do recognize it as a threat to, to academic freedom, and this is you know why I'm so grateful that we have a faculty union, and and my my union colleagues and union attorney right away you know were like just saw this as it as it was as a you know a potential threat to, to my academic freedom. It is a little bit convoluted in that I was on the same side as my administration in this lawsuit because the colleague was suing. The university because of what they allowed me to do. And so the, to be fair, the university legally was not trying to curtail my academic freedom, but for the president to say in this op-ed that to, that he said something like point park is no place for BDS. We're not going to allow that to happen. And immediately my union and uh, attorney and, and union um, uh, um, unit chair 
were on the phone with me and they were like, he can't, he can't do that. And we had a phone call with him right away. And, and basically we had him concede like, no, you, I can't prevent you from, 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 from speaking up or teaching in this way. You, you have the right to do that. And so, you know, I think faculty unions, um, they're not perfect, but they, they, ins- they should ensure that sort of uh, academic freedom. Dr. Robert Ross, thank you for joining us on Arab Talk. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate uh, everything you're doing. That's the voice in the face of uh, Professor Robert Ross, who recently had a complaint by Lawfare filed against him for speaking and uh, teaching about Palestine and his support of the BDS. That complaint was thrown out summarily by the judge, Jamal, which is a very, very big deal because they didn't even let it proceed. It was thrown out. It wasn't even being heard. And as you said in the intro, this is, you know, a huge, huge win for the First Amendment, for our Constitution, and for people who wish to stand up and criticize the apartheid regime. It's it's another big deal. Unfortunately, it is a tactic. They'll continue on using it. We've, we've, we've cited several examples. Just, I mean, we've had, of course, Dr. Abab Abdel Hadi, and we've had... Uh, Uh, people from Canada, and we uh, spoke about the case of uh, Dr. I think Miller in, in, in the UK and so forth. It's a way of harassment and silencing basically critics of uh, the apartheid regime of Israel. It's also conflating the criticism of Israel with uh, anti-Semitism. They'll try all these tactics to see what sticks You know, no, apparently nothing sticks. And, 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 and it's really, they're all intended. And, and that's the thing, just as you know, the, 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 uh, you know, when Palestinians, uh, and we'll talk about Gaza in, in short, they try to defend themselves, then they get blamed for their own death and for their own injury. God forbid that resistance should should be part of their uh, lexicon while the united states the eu canada and other countries support uh, the ukrainians and, and 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 we basically praise them for resisting russia but then the palestinians are not supposed to have any form of resistance when they use the peaceful manners through boycott, which is uh, what worked to basically end the apartheid regime of South Africa, then they tell them also, oh, you cannot do that. You can, you cannot also use peaceful methods. If they want to raise their case to in front of the International uh, Criminal Court, they also attack Palestinians and say, no, no, you cannot do that. So I don't know what... What do they uh, want? They want well. Basically... Here's what they want. Here's yeah. what they want. They unfortunately, Jamal, even though the case was dismissed, and it's been dismissed on multiple occasions, in in many ways, the Lawfare Project and the supporters of the apartheid regime don't care. In some ways, I mean, they they would like these cases to go forward, but what they're trying to do is exhaust the the emotional, mental, and financial resources of these individuals. thats It's a psychological tactic, as we know, that they're going to come after people like Professor Ross, Professor Miller, Professor Abdul Hadi, and anybody else with the idea that if you criticize the apartheid regime, if you, if you speak about BDS, let alone support BDS, they're going to leverage all of their resources and come after you so it'll cost you time energy and money and, and even that- if you want to talk about or teach about palestine in historical context or any kind of context also they want to basically silence you and muzzle you well you know they're they're going to continue to waste money uh we've had and by the way what's interesting is that we've had judges now across the political spectrum you know who've shut these cases down and it's interesting to see the the kind of judicial system in the United States, because we know the executive and the legislative bodies are in the pockets of pro-Israel allies, you know, from APAC to J Street to whomever. But mercifully, thank goodness that some aspects of our judicial system, the judges are saying, hey, this is a First Amendment right. You, You know, this is a ridiculous Uh, you know, complaint that you're, uh, you know, putting forward and they summarily dismiss it. I doubt it'll stop it, Jamal, but it's another it's another big win for the First Amendment. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about this again because these are ongoing cases. Uh, 
Right. And, uh, and, 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 and then you mentioned APEC, and we know <laughs> even in uh, American politics, of course, we've seen what APEC has done, uh, you know, even uh, campaigning against uh, Democrats. Democrats and Jewish, <laughs> and Jewish politicians like uh, Congressman Levine. Right. And, uh, you know, and they are not registered as a foreign agent as they should be, but nevertheless, they are allowed to interfere in American politics on behalf of a foreign country, yeah. on behalf of yeah. Israel. Yeah, and it's a big loophole. They get away. They get away with it. They're able to continue to do it. They come after, they're an equal opportunity antagonist. As you mentioned, they came after Representative Levine, you know, kind of a Democrat in Michigan. And it didn't matter that he was a Democrat. didn't matter that he happens to be Jewish. It didn't matter that he has progressive politics. Uh, They came after him. And uh, they're going to continue to come after uh, individuals, unfortunately, with the upcoming midterm elections, we'll we'll continue to follow that. But you know, Jamal, we have to talk about obviously what's happening in Gaza because the apartheid state has uh, kind of initiated this state-sponsored terrorist attack against innocent Palestinian civilians, men, women, and children. Forty-four have died, at least hundreds injured. And the thing that I that I I mean, there's so much to talk about, but the the one piece that I want to hear your comment on is the 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 apartheid regime's analysis. What they said was they thwarted what they thought was going to be uh, an imminent attack. He, I, I'm I'm so outraged that they continue to offer this kind of uh, you know ridiculous narrative, and it. It's accepted by the United States and the mainstream media who actually say this kind of crazy stuff. They tried to avoid avoid an imminent attack. What a what what a complete fabrication and lie, Jamal. Well, we get into the crux of this uh, just in details, but uh, to our listeners, I just want to make sure that we have the latest updates, and and you've actually said it correctly early on, but this is according to figures from the Palestinian Health Ministry, Jess. So far, uh, 44 Palestinians, including 16 children, uh, were killed, uh, murdered by the Israeli regime, and at least 300 civilians uh, wounded, uh, many of them are in critical condition. So the numbers uh, can change, sadly, in a, in a very sad way. Since 2008, and I'm not going to go further, but uh, Israel has, has waged four wars uh, uh, on, on Gaza, just killing nearly 4,000 people. One quarter, pay attention to this, 25% of, of those who were killed were children. In, in, in what society, what world is this is acceptable? 25% of the casualties out of the 4,000, 1,000 children, and we're talking about only 2008. We're not going all the way to 1948. We're not talking, going to 1967. We're not even including 2006, which also right. has... But I'm just giving a quick figure, just over, over a span, that we have this. Uh, according to data compiled by Defense for Children Internationally, at least 2,000 200 children have been killed by the Israeli military regime and settlers, because that figure, you know, that's also settlers across both the the West Bank and Gaza. And this this figure, this 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 is uh, this is you know in in both the West Bank and and Gaza. So it's very distressing. Uh, you you talk it about is. you talk about the excuse, which is a nonsense. I'll get I'll get to this because I don't think you'll hear that uh, making the connections. Number one, you know, and people made that connection. This is a political game for Israeli politicians to show their manhood and get get the votes. And especially when the politicians are supposedly from the center. Uh, left or this is, know, these are the these are the these, progressives. These are what the, the United States uh, labels uh, the United States labels them as doves. These are the doves. So when the doves come into power, and now we're talking about Lapid, the most recent prime minister, and he's coming back coming up for elections in three months. He has ninety days 
to prove his manhood. So the easiest uh, quest for him is to go kill some Palestinians. Kill and, some children. And, kill and, kill and, children. And, and create an excuse and show that he is a, a war prime minister, just like uh, George W. Bush, that when he claimed that he was a war president, he's, he says, I'm also a, a war prime minister. And uh, the easiest target is to go after Gaza because you're talking about shooting fish in a tank. Gaza is the largest open-air prison. Almost 2 million Palestinians live there. They cannot go anywhere. Just anyone, I, you can be blindfolded and shoot a, shoot a missile towards Gaza. You're going to kill children. You're going to kill people. It's so crowded. You don't have to have any military skills to kill because you're going to kill. And, well, and- that's but, 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 but if you look at the pictures, Jamal, which I know you did, we, we've all seen the pictures, the, the, the area that they drop these multi-ton bombs into are in the middle of civilian neighborhoods. In the middle of civilian neighbors, the one picture that I found most distressing was a cratered hole with a complete rubble surrounded by apartment buildings on all four sides, Jamal. So, you know, the, the, the so-called most moral army in the world with the highest level of sophisticated weaponry where they can precisely drop bombs. So this isn't a random attack of just firing a missile into Gaza, Jamal. This is a deliberate attempt to hit a particular neighborhood and a particular apartment building where it's known that men, women, and children and civilians live. And how is this not a war crime? How is this celebrated in the media? When we are celebrating the fact that Ukraine is able to defend itself and Ukraine does these things, how 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 is this celebrated in the media, Jamal? Just I wanna, it, before I answer this, I want to go back to the second part of of your question. Uh, basically, you know what what prompted this, and and I said earlier that this is political, but that right. this is this is something else. Also, I think it's connected, and and this is very important. This is connected with the uh, preemptive strike on Ayman al-Zawahiri and killing Ayman al-Zawahiri. And people right. say, what are you talking about? You're talking about Afghanistan, you're calling it Al-Qaeda. You're calling it. This is the only two countries that basically give themselves the carte Permission. blanche, the carte blanche to assassinate foes, whether they are terrorists, whether they are civilians, or they are on the terror list. It's basically you're talking about the United States and, and Israel. The United States has a history, you know, of course, because in, under international law, you have to do all everything possible to arrest these folks if they are terrorists and bring them into justice. I mean, you know, first, then, uh, first, first, you first. just don't go willy nilly and, and, and hit them with a missile. I mean, it, it, you know, uh, you know, it happened in Yemen, as you know, and, they've, and, 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 and civilians were killed. Children were killed in Yemen. No, that, no apology, no right. restitution, nothing. And so Israel is the other country that does the same thing. And and knowing, you know, and again, I, I don't know what's, and we talked, maybe we'll talk about it later in details about um, like what all of a sudden Ayman al-Zawahiri became an important asset. I mean, we haven't heard anything about Ayman al-Zawahiri or even al-Qaeda for that, for that matter. But all of a sudden now, with the popularity of Biden is sinking, there is nothing that he can do to repair his popularity economically. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what else, uh, you know, uh, politically. And so, yeah, that gives you a little bit of airtime, a couple of days, the media talks about it and celebrate that. And not that we are shedding tears over Ayman al-Zawahiri, but, no. but, but, but the timing is very important. And then a few days later, Israel follows suit and targets a leader in the Islamic Jihad. Notice they didn't go after Hamas. And this is very important because the Islamic Jihad is a very small organization compared to Hamas. If they went after Hamas leadership, the war would be ongoing. Right. You know, and, 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 the, and then the response from Hamas will be bigger and louder and will continue and so forth. So they wanted to actually play this also simple game. We're going to show that also we are in control. 
We give ourselves the permission for this preemptive strike, concoct something that something was going to happen. I don't know where they come up with this. No, it's BS. It's BS. And so they go, in order to kill this one leader, they go, and now we have 16 children murdered. We have 350 civilians affected by this. We have families made homeless. As you know, when you destroy a building in Gaza, you are putting on the streets over 100 people on the streets. At least. You know, and and that's their livelihood, and they don't have, they become homeless. And that's, Israel does that because it can do it, you know, with impunity. Every single time they get away with it, and you have the United States, and you have Canada, and you have the EU, who issue statements like saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, oh, we are sorry for the civilian or the innocent people, uh, loss of life, but we stand with Israel. That's always, and we stand, with Israel has the right uh, to defend itself. Palestinians don't have the right to defend themselves. Just. Well, ap- apparently not, Jamal. Apparently, Palestinians don't have the right to defend themselves. And and just to call out uh, the apartheid states' uh, kind of complete fabrications and lies, if they knew where this guy was, as you said before, under international law, you would go in and arrest him or get him and bring him through their fake uh, military justice system. But they chose not to, Jamal. They chose not to. If they knew that this was an imminent attack and they knew where he, they obviously knew where he was because that's where they dropped the bomb. Why didn't they just go and arrest him? They have the means, they have the capability, but I think you're right. You know, they have, they, they want to prove their, because they have no manhood, they have to do these things to prove that maybe they have some kind of manhood. This is complete state-sponsored terror, Jamal. And I just want to add a little bit to what you said. This is connected to Ayman al-Zawahi, absolutely. But it's also connected to everything that's happening between China and Taiwan and Russia and Ukraine and the economic difficulties uh, happening globally right now. It's the typical apartheid regime ploy that when everybody is, you know, the news cycle is going somewhere else, they use it as an opportunity. I did want to get your kind of comment on one thing, Jamal, which I found very interesting. Um, if it, Correct me if I'm wrong. This ceasefire occurred within three days. When was the last time the Israeli military, the apartheid regime, agreed to a ceasefire after only three days? That That's, that's kind of a record, isn't it? Well, that's why I'm saying they're playing this game, and that's why they targeted. They didn't target Hamas because they know this would have lasted much longer. They wanted a very quick operation to show. Basically, Lapid wanted to show that he's in charge and he is going to be a strong prime minister because he's now going to be re- facing again. Probably, you get Netanyahu and you get others challenging him, saying that he's not protecting Israel and so forth. So that was a quick calculated way of basically sacrificing Palestinians. And that's why they accepted the ceasefire. I don't know if it's going to last because, you know, ceasefires uh, are meaningless when it comes to Israel because, you know, they are they are like, you know, uh, Israel's like a, Israel like is, is like a serial killer. You know, the serial killer might stop, you know, for a few months, but then you know that the serial serial killer is going to strike again and they kill can't, again. They, they can't stop themselves. They can't stop themselves, and they can't stop. It. So, so you know that this is going to repeat repeat itself, uh, and and Israel, you know, because as long as the international community does nothing to stop Israel, they're going to keep repeating it over and over again. I want to, you know, with our limited time. Uh, just two things I want to do. One, I want to talk about the media. But before I talk about the media, because this is another another shameful, another shameful behavior by the media, which we talked about it last time, when you compare it with, you know, uh, just to remind people, the media that fell in love with, according to them, people with blonde hair and blue eyes, right? And that's the thing. It's the same scenario when it comes to the killing of black and brown people, you know, not only they don't cover it and they don't cover it cover it properly they don't care. and, and humani- humanize 
the victims, but also they make excuses. They actually regurgitate what the Israeli Hasbara talking machine po- talking says. Points. Palestinians, there is an Aaron missile, and all Palestinians give them, kill themselves. Like all of a sudden, there is like this family, four kids get killed, and then they show a, a film. You don't know its source. You don't know where it landed. Listen, you know how many rockets, Katyusha, uh, um, I should say, were launched by Palestinians to Israel? Not a single Israeli was killed. Of and course. so imagine this precision system that they have or whatever that goes and now kills four in one shot. Not a single time that actually neither Islamic Jihad or Hamas were able to, to destroy a big building. Right. And make it fall all the way to the ground and, and, and turn it into rubble like Israelis uh, do and kill an entire family. So you know where the lies the lies are. But, but Jamal, just we have to go into this just a little bit because the, the parroting of the Israeli Hasbara and talking points is so disgusting. They describe it as Palestinian militants being targeted. It's such an insult to what is happening on the ground to these innocent civilians, these men, women, and children who were murdered and assassinated by these weapons. It's it's branded the, the, the Israel versus militants. And do we hear that language when we hear about Russia and Ukraine, when we hear about the Taiwanese defending themselves against Chinese aggression anywhere else, Jamal? Do we hear that kind of rhetoric? No, no. And, and, and furthermore, on, on that story of the death of the four, four uh, kids, uh, really just, it's just to create a smoke screen and distraction. Let's, let's just say for argument's sake that this was an error in menacing, which, by the way, nobody talks about, well, who started it? Why, why did, uh, anyways, why did Islamic Jihad respond is that because they were under attack? But regardless, 16 kids were killed. So what happened to the other, right, 12 kids? You don't talk about them. So all of a sudden That's you create right. this distraction. What, Palestinians killed all the 16 kids? They murdered their own children? So imagine this is this is the narrative they use. And, and, and media outlets, just they just take what the Israeli uh, military uh, spokesperson says... They take a video supplied by them, just the same way they did with uh, with Shirin Abu Akli. Oh no, it, she was killed by crossfire uh, from Palestinian side. Now no one talk is talking about this because that was a lie, and it was proven to be a lie by several media outlets who were on the scene, including her colleague who was shot in the back. Right, and now. Again, to minimize this and to create a distraction, they tell you, oh, there is an Iran missile, and then they don't talk about the 350 people that uh, got shot and the 44 uh, civilians that got killed and the, and the 16 children that, that were killed and the property that got damaged. And uh, to me, it's like, I don't know when the U.S. media, with a few exceptions, are just going to practice journalism. Wait, but but what, what examples do we have of that, Jamal? We don't have any examples. Well, few there are decent there are decent what? journalists on, on, on this on this particular incident. Uh, yeah, few few yeah few with. I haven't course, seen. Not I haven't, the, I'm not talking about the mainstream. I'm not talking about no, the large. And I, then, I'm talking about the mainstream, Jamal. I'm not talking about the in some independent, uh, relatively small media sources, and I'm not talking about Al Jazeera that gets uh, somehow finds its way into U.S. audiences. I'm talking about if you watched, you know, the primary cable news or primary broadcast television and you hear about what's happening, it has it has nothing to do with reality and everything to do with the Hasbara talking points. They parrot it. They dehumanize Palestinian children. They... They 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 don't make them human, and because they're not blonde and blue-eyed, although there are blonde and blue-eyed Palestinians in Gaza, but because of the narrative of Palestinians Palestinian, come come in all shades, shapes, and colors. and colors, and and we know that, but because they get identified in a particular way and narratized in a particular way, they they will never cross that line, Jamal, of having the same right that an oppressed people and occupied people, just like Ukrainians have the right to defend themselves 
so do every other oppressed people who are under attack and under occupation, including Palestinians, including Yemenis, including everybody else on this planet who is being under attack by these state-sponsored terror groups, uh, the apartheid regime. And then at, at the end of the day, the death of children and death of innocent lives, it, uh, it just numbers. They just list numbers and and Palestinians are somehow killed. You know, they don't say who killed them, who murdered them. How and, they died. And how they died, faceless, nameless. And so we're running out of time, and I want to talk more about this, but I'm not going to leave the show just without naming these uh, children, uh, you know, because they mean something to us. They mean something to Palestinians. They have a name. They have a life. They have families. So uh, I'm just going to um, remember them. Uh, just Jamil Najam al-Din Najam, four years. Ala Qaddoum, five. Mu'min Nayrab, five. Hazm Salim, nine. Ahmed Nayrab, 11. Jamil Najam, 13. Muhammad Yasser al-Nabihin, uh, 13. Dalia Yasser al-Nabihin, uh, 13. Muhammad Hassuna, 14. Uh, Hamid Haidar Najam, 16. Nazmi Faiz Abu Karsh, 16. Ahmed Al-Farram, uh, 16. Muhammad Najam, 17. And Khalil Hamada, 17. Unbelievable. Um, thank you for reading those names, Jamal. And they are, they are real people. They are real children. And they have paid the ultimate price for this aggression, this murderous aggression by the apartheid state. So... Um, I, I I know that we all appreciate that their names were read, and we're all appreciative of that, Jamal. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episode, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>